This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. These days, people think that artificial intelligence can do anything. But you know what? That isn't necessarily the case. For instance, there is a puzzling murder mystery out there that has proven to be quite the challenge to AI. And that is intriguing. So we are going to find out more. Joining us now is Kenna Hughes-Castleberry, science communicator for JILA at the University of Colorado and the editor-in-chief of Light and Matter. Kenna, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Simi. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, can you explain to me, what is, what is Kane's jawbone and how did you find out about this? Sure. So Kane's jawbone is a 90-year-old puzzle book that was published in 1934 um, by this crossword compiler named Edward Mathis. And what he ended up doing is writing this mystery novel that's very Victorian, very gothic. It depicts six murders and six murder victims. Um, But the puzzle part is that he printed it entirely out of order. And so you as the reader not only have to figure out who did who, but you have to figure out how the pages are reordered. Um, And so when the book was originally published in 1934, they did an annual competition and only four people solved it. And then in 1936, the book went on a print. And then in 2018, it was actually rediscovered and reprinted. Um, And the copy I have is the 2019 edition, which a random friend sent to me. I didn't know at the time. It was just a random package I got in the mail. So I was very intrigued to try to solve it and figure out what happened. Okay, this actually sounds to me like it would be perfect for artificial intelligence, right? Scan it all into AI and let it figure it out. You would think so, but because all the pages are out of order, there's really no context for the AI to know what the proper order of the book is. And so it becomes quite an interesting challenge to try to cha- uh, to try to challenge the language AI models like ChatGPT and others on. Oh, okay. So how did you do this? So I ended up um, working with the publisher, Unbound Publishing, and we decided to try to see if there was a company out there that could test the, the book on AI. And we ended up uh, finding Zindi, which is a African-based company. They have over 50,000 um, data analysts and software programmers who do puzzles similar to this all the time. So it was a perfect fit for them. Um, but by the time we got the competition all set up, we only had a week in 2022 to try to solve everything. Um, and so the publisher has kept the f- true answer of the pages reordered secret forever. Um, they may one they release it. But uh, they only gave it to one person at Zindi who programmed it into the, the computer as far as a test. We ended up using Agatha Christie's Mysterious Seferit Styles as a training data because it was written around the same time period. It has very similar language and the pages are, of course, in order so the AI can, can understand kind of what it needs to do. Um, and then the programmers from there use the, the language models to try to reorder the pages. Okay, I love this. So essentially, you told all these AI programmers, here, try to figure this out. Uh, And, you know, I'm sure they thought that AI can do anything. Uh, What happened, though? Because not very many of them could actually do it, right? Yeah, so we had about 400 individuals from around the world participate in the competition. Um, And it turns out the top score that people got was 42%. Um, So only 42 out of the 100 pages were properly reordered. Um, And again, it just goes to show you how difficult it is for the AI to try to reorder something with zero context. Um, And so the, the two people who ended up successfully reordering that top score were two mathematicians out of South Africa. And in speaking to them afterwards, about kind of what what all went into the process. They were talking about how they ended up doing more of a human-assisted AI sort of method where, you know, if one page says first pill and the next page says second pill, well, you know, this one comes before that one. But the AI might not necessarily know that. So that was something that they kind of did to end, end up getting that top score. Well, I actually feel a bit relieved hearing this, Kenna, because it does mean that I guess there's still some room left for the human brain out there. 
Absolutely. <laughs> and I don't think that AI will be able to solve this anytime soon. It'll just be a matter of getting the technology more advanced to get there. Isn't that amazing, though, that something that was written almost like 100 years ago is still is something that is still challenging today? Absolutely. And especially with seeing news stories of AI helping to uncover ancient languages or try to decode um, languages that we still don't know about, it's rather fascinating to see that there is a lot of space in this field for AI to come in and try to recover or um, salvage uh, old texts. But of course, this one presents a quite unique challenge that's rather different. So are you a, a mystery solving person or are you just a puzzle person? A little bit of both. Um, I absolutely love Agatha Christie. I consider her my junk food when I'm reading just because <laughs> you you can have a nice brainless read and, and enjoy it. Um, but, uh, but I absolutely love solving puzzles. And so when I got this book in the mail and I didn't know who sent it to me, I was trying to not only solve the puzzle itself, but trying to also figure out who sent me this book. <laughs> well, that sounds like somebody who knew you very well, right? To do that, actually. Um, did you ever find yes. out? Yes, I did. It turns out it was one of my friends. I, I posted the book on social media. I texted everybody. I, I'm asking people, you know, did you send this to me? Did you send this to me? And it turns out that my friend who sent it to me didn't leave a note with the with the Amazon package, of course. So I was like, I have no idea who sent this. She ended up texting me later and said, hey, did you get the package I sent you? Oh, so she inadvertently <laughs> gave you a mystery. <laughs> Exactly. And I went, oh, that was you. Oh, how surprising. I, I didn't know. Thank you for clearing this <laughs> issue up. So what do you think? Uh, what does this tell us about AI at this point? Oh, gosh, I feel like that's such a broad question. Um, and so I'm not quite sure that I'll fully answer it because I am not an AI expert. I'm, a, of course, just a science writer. But at least from what I've seen, AI can do some amazing things that we just are completely blown away by. Like you think of ChatGPT and it can make a presentation in 15 seconds with 96 slides if you ask it to. But on the other hand, you know, books like this where they're out of order, they have really, really, really vague language and have like puns and weird references to Victorian culture. Like that's just something that AI is not trained to do yet to solve, right? So it does show that there still are limitations out there and that, you know, maybe this isn't top priority for AI uh, software programmers to try to design the AI to do, but it is something to think about that, you know, when we think of the new stories of AI, there can be some hype involved. And this is just one of the, the examples that there are limitations. That's good to know though. I think that makes people feel a little bit better. Akana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was fascinating. That's Kenna Hughes-Castleberry, who's a science communicator for JLA at the University of Colorado and the editor-in-chief of Light and Matter, talking about, yeah, limitations to AI, all because of a problem-solving book kind of novel that AI could not crack. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it's time for us to check in with our Scott Shantz this morning. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. So you also like to shop at Winners. I shop at Winners. Yeah, I do. Good to know. John Strait does too. Oh, yeah. I was just doing a little survey because I read this great article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about men's shopping habits. Okay. And I guess the fashion, the men's fashion editor there was kept getting emails from male you yes. know, shoppers saying, why don't you ever review the clothes at Costco? Because men's Costco clothes are amazing. And so they did. It was like a huge spread in the Wall Street yeah. Journal. And yeah, they, yeah. they came back with the big thumbs up. Yeah, I know a lot of guys that rock clothes from Costco. One of the reasons that I don't is because I think they don't have enough variety. So when you get something from there, everyone who also shops there is like, oh yeah, you got that at Costco. Eh? I view that as a badge of honor. Yeah. I was at Park Royal last summer for something and I was wearing like a linen dress that I had bought at Costco <laughs> and a lady went by me and she stopped and she pointed at me and I thought she was going to ask I thought maybe she was like yeah. a fan of the station that, you know, that she was going to ask me about work. And she said, did you get that dress at Costco? Yeah, yeah. I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I did. she goes, oh, I have the one in black. And so oh, then we had this funny. long conversation about that too. So you never know where you're going to get great clothes. Well, I think that a lot of that has to do with the women's clothes there are, are better and the men's clothes there. Like it's just, it's not according got, to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I do like that though. Like I really like rare sneakers. You know, like rare oh, sort of sneaker loud yeah. sneakers. I mean, I would be if it wasn't like a really expensive hobby. But uh, I like, you know, if I'm wearing a rare pair and I walk down the street and it's very, it's 
like somebody notices, you know, oh, like, guys oh, do. you, People you got a pair of those, like, oh, yeah. those are only available for one day and you got a pair. I can't believe that. I like that. Yes, that happens. That happens. I, I have a, one of those in my family, somebody who loves to, not yeah. rare because obviously they can't afford it, but I, I'm always shocked at the number of people who will stop him and be like, hey, great, great shoes. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's a, a line from Nike that uh, has all sorts of little nods to all different things from pop culture, like the Simpsons and various different things. And people who get it kind of really get it. It's one of those interesting subculture things. I love it. Okay. What are we talking about today? Uh, well, I want to talk about how tired we are, Simi. I'm not. <laughs> you, you actually seem quite energetic this morning, I will say. Uh, do you hit snooze in nope. the morning? You don't. Uh, okay. My alarm doesn't even go off. Whoa. I will tell you, Scott, that maybe my alarm alarm goes off and I maybe three times a year. Wow. Yeah. That you sleep that far through. My alarm goes off every morning. I sleep until the alarm, but I never hit snooze. I'm the same as you and uh, other people. I'm who, up before my alarm. Sure. It doesn't even hit. I don't even hit it. Yeah. People who I've, have worked this early shift like we do talk about, you know, sleep habits because it's such a precarious thing and have said, a lot of people, you never hit the snooze. You just, the alarm goes off. You get up right away because conventional knowledge has always sort of said that uh, doing that is worse for you. You should just get consistent sleep right up until the last minute that you can sleep and then get up. But now a new study is actually kind of going counter to that, saying that snoozing up to three times might actually be good for you. Up to three times? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. 30 minutes. They're calling it like a sort of half sleep state that basically just stretches out that you know, waking up period and um, gets your body used to the idea of, of, yeah, of waking up. And they say that it's not as damaging as they would have initially thought. The way that they tested this was uh, letting people, first of all, people go to a sleep lab. 1,700 people went to this sleep lab. How do you get into a sleep lab? That's my first question. Do you just want me to sleep? And you're going to do everything else? I don't think I could do that. Oh, really? Oh, man. But I'm going to go to sleep and people are going to monitor me? I don't know about that. No, I'm totally into that. Totally into it. Uh, And then when they woke up, they either let them snooze or let them, made them get up and turn the lights on right away. And then they asked them some math questions and uh, sort of tried to determine their cognitive ability. Now, of course, there's a lot of variables here that, you know, don't necessarily, but like it's a a big sample group, 1700. That is big. And they're finding out that, uh, yeah, like most people who hit the snooze button perform just as well or better in some cases than the people who hit don't hit snooze and get right up. I will say that I think it depends on the shift that you work. Hmm. I think if, you know, on this, if you work an early morning shift, you're already probably setting your alarm for the latest that you can yes. get up to yep. get to work. So you can't really afford the snooze. And it's not like there's a whole room full of people here. If one of us doesn't show up for work in the morning. Right. That's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. Because we used to have somebody who did that, (laughs) who liked that snooze button a little too much. Yeah. And that causes problems for the other few people who are working at that hour. That sort of plays into this. I think it has a lot to do with the type of person that you are. Like I have trouble getting back to sleep, knowing that I'm only going to go back to sleep for nine or 10 minutes. Exactly. It's a waste. It is a waste. And then I feel like my sleep was not as good. It was not enjoyable anyway, because you wake up like, oh, I should have just got up. So that's what I try to do is that if I wake up 15 minutes, in this case this morning, half an hour before my alarm was going to go off, then I'm just going to get up. Yeah, I do, the, I do that same thing too. Sometimes I walk in the door here and they'll, <laughs> our producer Greg will say to me, why are you here so early? And I say, you know what? Forward momentum. There was no stopping once I was up and out of bed. Yeah, yeah. And you've said that before to me, the yes. forward momentum thing, because you don't nap. Like I still nap. Like I'm going to have a big nap when I get home today, but you don't do that either. No, I don't. I only nap on Fridays. Right. And because I don't, I want to make sure that my sleep is not interrupted during the week. You have a nap in the afternoon, then what if I can't go to sleep at night? So that's just me. But you know what? Some people love the snooze, Scott. They love the snooze button. It's lame that sleep is such an essential thing for us and yet so, so hard to get right. Like all you're supposed to do is just lay there and do nothing. And yet our minds have twisted it into this thing that we need to examine it and come up with better systems for it. I have an app for it or wear a watch that helps you sleep better, Go whatever to a sleep it is. Lab. I would love to find out from people whether they're snooze button people or not. So you're not a snooze button person. I am not a snooze button person. Neither no. am I. But let's see if other people out there are sure. you a snooze button person? Do you use it and how often do you hit it in the morning? Maybe you're hitting it right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. 
And good morning, Simi. All right, we're going to start out today by talking about Lytton. It is surprising that we still have to bring this story to light after the last couple of years. Well, yeah, it, it really is an indictment of how we do stuff here in British Columbia. So you go back to the fire that destroyed Lytton in a matter of minutes in July, it's June 30th, 2021. And right away you get then Premier John Horgan and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We got your back, Lytton. We're going to rebuild Lytton. We're going to put up a whole bunch of money. And they have put up a lot of money. Last time I looked, they put up about $150 million, which ought to be enough to build a town, but nothing has happened. Uh, Here we are. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Lytton residents, well, would-be Lytton residents, some of them have died waiting to get back into their homes, uh, have a protest march, 840 days and still no town. I mean, that is, as I said, uh, just a, an indictment of the way we do things here in British Columbia. It really is incredible that nothing has happened there two and a half years have passed. And what is the holdup? Like from, from observing it, what is going on? Well, as near as one can tell, we have legislation in British Columbia called the Heritage Act, which requires when there is evidence, suspicion, historical evidence, in this case, historical evidence, that a site uh, may well contain artifacts uh, of indigenous inhabitation going back thousands of years. No question that Lytton does have that. What you have to do is conduct a thorough archaeological examination of the site. And then if you set out to build anything, uh, you have to basically have a contract with an agency that uh, staffs and monitors what's going on uh, to see if anything turns up while you're digging. And those contracts are not cheap. Uh, One resident uh, said, okay, I'm ready to start, Uh, gets a tab for $22,000. People being paid $800 a day to watch holes being dug in the ground. The people of Lytton, to their credit, are not blaming Indigenous people for this. They are not coming out and saying, we've had enough of this. They have, obviously. But they're not trying to pick with a fight with their neighbours, their Indigenous neighbours. I think, however, Simi, they have a good case to make that British Columbia society collectively established these principles in legislation for archaeological review and instead of sticking the homeowners with the bills for this work, what, they, what we should be doing collectively, what we should have done a long time ago, is build accommodation for these people nearby somewhere else and collectively take on the responsibility of excavating the site and rebuilding Lytton under our new laws and registration. That's the best I can say looking at it. But there's something else we should flag here, Simi. The government doesn't want to talk about this. They don't want an independent review of how they've handled it. They have repeatedly, the New Democrats, given us all kinds of guff about when this is going to be underway. I've got a file full of towns should be rebuilt by now, just to believe what New Democrats have said in the past. And the other night, um, the MLA for the region, Jackie Teagart, got up in the Public Accounts Committee of the Legislature, which is the one that oversees the work of the Auditor General, and she made a motion. Let's get the independent Auditor General to come in and look at this and tell us, is the government being straight with us? Is What are the reasons for all these holdups? The New Democrats voted it down. They mustered their majority. Uh, They may have trouble getting going on rebuilding Lytton, but they've got no problem using their voting power to make sure nobody ever takes an independent look at what they're doing. They voted it down, and the motion died because uh, the opposition didn't have the votes to push it forward. Right, but the Auditor General can still do this. You know, that's interesting, and that's true. The Auditor General really is an independent watchdog on government, and not just on financial matters, but on the effectiveness of government programs. And the Auditor General conducts those kinds of reviews all the time. Um, I would say that 
Um, I don't see an awful lot of enthusiasm on the part of the Auditor General to look at cutting edge things like this, where you could actually come in and write a report and say, here's what went wrong, here's what needs to happen, but give the Auditor General the benefit of the doubt. He could take the hint uh, from uh, the Public Accounts Committee. He could say, well, the government doesn't want me to look into this. I better look into this, because that would be, yeah, if I were Auditor General, <laughs> I think if any journalist in British Columbia were Auditor General, because remember, the Auditor General has access to that those of us in the right. news media can only dream of. He can order up any documents. He can take testimony. They can't hide from an auditor general that's determined to get to the bottom of it. So I say, attention, auditor general, the government doesn't want you looking into this. That's reason enough to look into this. Oh, I think he's the kind of person who might just take a look at yeah, that. Right. So yeah, I no. think so. Yeah, I like likes to get a couple of hints dropped there. So we'll have to talk more about that. Well, I'm waiting to see the bill for the fines after yesterday's announcement by BC Ferries about missing a couple of sailings for crew shortages. We're back now with Vaughn Palmer. You're waiting to see the bill too, right? Yeah, you know, the New Democrats, uh, they took charge of the Ferry Corporation, put their team in place to run things and Man, oh, man, they're going to get tough with this thing. The government announced it's going to claw back part of the subsidy that it gives BC Ferries uh, fines if they miss a sailing. And let's see. The subsidy this year is $700 million. The fines are $7,000. You can do the math. Anyway, um, we got the first real interruption yesterday in service uh, since the fine announcement uh, so, of course, you go on, you pick on the minister, Rob Fleming. Um, what about the fines? Well, they don't kick in until next year. Oh, what a relief. Uh, the ferry corporation <laughs> oh, yeah. Gets home and next year they're going to get that $7,000. That's going to make a big <laughs> difference down there. Uh, anyway, uh, it's crew shortages. It's all the stuff we've been writing about. They, <laughs> they, at least it wasn't a vessel problem. In fact, they took one of the vessels that was in for repairs and brought it back into service a day early to try to relieve the pressure. And they managed to fix things up and, and we stagger onward. Uh, you know, they really did take political ownership of this, Simi. This is the thing that stands out to me. They appointed a former NDP cabinet minister, Joy McPhail, as the chair of the board. And the first thing she did was she fired the CEO that uh, the New Democrats had inherited. Uh, and she put in her handpicked choice as a, as a CEO. And, and neither one of them, neither Joy McPhail nor Nicholas Jimenez, have any experience running a ferry system, but okay, they're the NDP's choices. So you go to the premier and you say, like, when do you actually take ownership of this thing? You know, you've taken yeah. political ownership. When do, you, when do you, and he goes, his response is fascinating. I'm very frustrated, wildly frustrated. I'm not going to stand for this. <laughs> I'm listening to him. I'm going, you know, he's, he, he like shares you are the premier, pain. Though. If you're waiting yeah. <laughs> for the fairies, he shares your pain. And I'm going, you are aware that you're the premier. Right. And that it's your team that's running the fairies. Like you can't blame this on the previous government, which has been gone for seven years and not missed, one has to say. Um, and that's what you get from the premier. He's wildly frustrated, and by God, they're not going to stand for this any longer, and we're going to fix everything. So we go on. Yeah, we go on, too. And though you mentioned, though, the fines aren't going to be taking place until no. next year, which is convenient, right? Yeah, well, you know, $7,000 fine, and the government's giving you $700 million this year, like, that's going to make a difference. I, yeah, I exactly. you know, I don't see it. Kevin Falcon says, well, "Why don't you find the executives?" But that, that doesn't really make sense either. I mean, the accountability here is with the government that took political ownership of the ferry system. Yes, and and, and that's where the accountability belongs, and that's where I feel your pain is not going to satisfy. Very many people out there that are waiting for the ferry. All right. And we also talk about the Massey Tunnel, because I also oh. had a chuckle about this big update on the Massey Tunnel. And I still has anything changed so, about when this thing is going to be finished? Yes. Yeah, a trigger warning for the listener who is waiting to go through the Massey Tunnel this morning. Um, the next uh, announcement may uh, induce road rage, because... I sometimes wonder why the government announces these things. But we got a press release yesterday or news release from the uh, 
Transportation Ministry, uh, the Massey Tunnel Replacement Project is on track. They have chosen the three firms would-be bidders for the short list. And those, uh, they'll sort through those three firms and announce a final choice next year. And before long, the replacement for the tunnel, which is going to be another tunnel, uh, will be underway. So they got this one in hand. The tunnel will be open in 2030. So only seven more years of waiting. Oh, only. That's great. Only after seven, yesterday you know. morning, Vaughn, after yesterday morning, I'm sure this is on the minds of a lot of people. Yeah, I know. It was a look, nightmare yesterday. Um, look, they inherited a project from <clears throat> the previous BC Liberal government, and some people didn't like it. It was a bridge. It was a wide bridge, 10 lanes. Uh, but the one thing that project had as an advantage going for it is if they had started, continued building it, they'd done some of the preliminary work, it would be open probably about now or by next year. And you wouldn't be waiting another seven years to get through the replacement tunnel. They say the project's on budget, by the way, $4.15 <laughs> billion. Dollars, well, seven years uh, before it's finished, it's on budget? That's amazing. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you follow what happened with the new hospital in Surrey, which went 67% over budget before the groundbreaking, I wouldn't take that number to the bank myself. Yeah, I know, but that's a long way to go. And for people who live out there, that is a nightmare commute, Vaughn. Yeah. Just a night. No, yeah, well, that's why you live in the city of Vancouver, right? It is. Yes, you, that's why you I saw moved. this coming, didn't you? Why didn't you tell the rest of us? <laughs> I, I was very uh, when people when I run into people from Ladner and they say that they go, "How is it?" I go, "Listen, I got to tell you, I have a dr the commute is amazing now, yeah. but I also commute at four o'clock in the morning. So what are you going to do? <laughs> it's going to be good. Rub enough. it in. Rub it in. So, yeah, I do get up early. Uh, thank you for that, Vaughn. <laughs> bye bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, right now, it feels like there is a lot of hopelessness, I think, in this Israel and Gaza war. Issues that have been simmering and barely held in check for years, now just causing so much damage and destruction. It wasn't always this way, though. Those of us of a certain age might remember a time back in the early 1990s when there was actually some hope. I mean, do you remember the Oslo Accords, an actual agreement negotiated between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Liberation Organization? Well, what happened to that hope? What has gone wrong in the 30 years since then? Well, Dr. Amnon Aran is a professor of international politics in the Middle East at the City University of London and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Aran, what has gone wrong? Or maybe for those who don't remember, let's start with the Oslo Accords. How significant were they? The Oslo Accords were extremely significant. Uh, they were signed between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And that was the first time that an Israeli government and the, rep the sole representative of the Palestinian people actually agreed to recognize each other. And at the time, therefore, they were really considered as a breakthrough. Okay, so then what happened? So the Oslo Accords were initially supposed to last only uh, five years. And interestingly, we are now over 30 years and they're still with us. There are a number of reasons that I think uh, brought the Oslo Accords to ultimately fail, and they concern both sides, Israel and the Palestinians. From the Israeli side, I would highlight the impact of Jewish settlements, which um, expanded and increased uh, in number. And I would also underscore the leadership of Prime Minister Netanyahu, who first came into power in 1996. Uh, rather than merely, rather than simply cancelling the uh, agreements or revoking them, which would have exacting from him a very high price, he simply uh, dragged feet, uh, reneged on agreements, and ultimately, you could say, killed um, the agreements kindly. Um, on the Palestinian side, there were also some significant factors, and, and the most important, to my mind, were undiscriminate terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians. Uh, Hamas, which is very much in the news now, was actually the first organization to introduce suicide bombers into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and since then really has carried out countless of attacks uh, against uh, Israeli civilian targets uh, indiscriminately. Uh, so I think those would really be the main factors that I would highlight. One more that I would say, possibly, is the wavering leadership of President uh, Yasser Arafat, the late President Yasser Arafat. At times, he seemed that he was very much in support 
and very much committed to the Oslo Accords. But then again, in other instances, he seemed to be uh, equivocating at best and actually undercutting uh, the Accords um, at worst. And maybe we should also point out here, like what happened to the leadership of the people like for the people who signed this, like what happened to the Palestinian Liber- Liberation Organization after that, and and what happened to the government in Israel that signed that? So of course there was the tragic um, assassination of Prime Minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin in 1995 by an Israeli settler on the 4th of November 1995, uh, which was one of the most significant setbacks uh, to the Oslo process. Uh, Rabin was probably the most trustworthy leader from the Palestinian side. And after his assassination, uh, they lost confidence significantly uh, in Israel's ability to carry uh, the process through. And of course, Rabin's leadership at the time uh, uh, proved to be probably uh, irreplaceable, certainly by his successor, uh, Shimon Peres. Uh, Interestingly, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which also uh, um, subsequently, if you like, still exists, Uh, But now, really, the main representative of the Palestinian people in the West Bank uh, is actually a body that emerged in the Oslo process called um, the Palestinian Authority. And over the years, the Palestinian Authority has lost a lot of its legitimacy due to uh, really presiding over very corrupt policies in the West Bank and also being seen by many Palestinians as collaborating with Israel and effectively being a subcontractor of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. So does, is that optimism then just completely gone? Is that, do you think, as close as they were ever going to come to perhaps ending this? Well, I think certainly in the last 30 years, I would say that probably 1994 uh, was the most optimistic year in the sense that uh, by that point, Israel and the PLO were able to actually sign Uh, two agreements, the first being the Declaration of Principles, and afterwards Israel uh, withdrew from parts of the Gaza Strip and also the Jericho area, which is in the West Bank. Uh, And concurrently, uh, Israel and Jordan signed a peace agreement, which still lasts uh, uh, up until today. And Israel commenced negotiations with several other Arab countries. I think that year really epitomized the sense of optimism that actually it is possible to both reach some sort of Uh, end uh, uh, and a peace agreement on the Israeli-Palestinian front and also possibly use that for a broader Arab-Israeli peace. But the combination really of rising terrorism, Jewish settlements, the assassination of uh, Prime Minister uh, Rabin, all that really also chipped away very significantly in the legitimacy that both Israelis and Palestinians had in the Oslo Accords. And since then, Uh, There have been ups and downs, but the general trajectory has certainly been uh, downwards. uh, And we see that very much uh, in the horrific war that is currently taking place between Israel and Hamas. Dr. Iran, this was a huge part of your life, wasn't it? You you grew up in Israel. That That was when you were kind of in your formative years, in your early 20s, all this was happening. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, I grew up in Israel. I also uh, established an Israeli-Palestinian non-governmental organization which promoted the rights, tried to promote the social rights of Israelis and Palestinians who live within Israel. And I think that also reflected very much the initial sense of optimism that we saw back then uh, during the 1990s. And I think it is very important in this very dark moment to actually remember that um, up until 1987 even, uh, Gazans used to go into Israel and work uh, it was in the context, of course, of, a, of an occupation, but there were also social relations between Israelis and Palestinians, labor relations between Israel and Palestinians. And it has not always been uh, uh, this kind of murderous relationship that we are seeing currently at the moment, not least the murderous uh, attacks that Hamas perpetrated from the West Bank onto Israeli kibbutzim, uh, murdering um, elderly uh, women Uh, uh, children uh, and men. So I think it is important that it has not always been thus. And maybe, only maybe, when this horrific war ends, we can pick up the pieces and try and take stock and see how one can actually return or at least begin to build um, a present that looks uh, that does not look at all like what we're seeing now. Before I let you go, I also just want to ask you what your impressions are of what the reaction has been from Israelis towards their government, 
the reaction from Palestinians towards Hamas, uh, it, it seems to be quite different. Like they, people, the average person wants peace. Well, I, I, I think the, the reaction has been very interesting to follow. Um, are you referring to the reaction to the current events? Or, or? Yes, like there has been, there's not just universal support, it would seem, for the Israeli government from its people. Yeah, so I think the, the response in Israel has been quite interesting to watch. I think there has been over the past year uh, unprecedented criticism and also followed by demonstrations against the Netanyahu uh, led government, a very extreme right-wing uh, government. Um, and I think the day of reckoning with the Netanyahu government will come, but it will come after the war. I think at the moment there is uh, almost a universal consensus in Israel to put to one side uh, the huge questions that loom over the conduct of the Netanyahu government and specifically its monumental failure not to anticipate this kind of attack and also the complete failure of the IDF to uh, uh, respond when Israeli citizens were being murdered for hours within Israeli territory. Remember, this is not the West Bank or the mm-hmm. Strip. So I think there are huge questions that are arising above that, but they will, they will be postponed at the moment to the end of the war unless the cabinet, the war cabinet led by Netanyahu will really perform very badly once the uh, ground offensive will commence, assuming that it does. And then the same questions might come back uh, uh, earlier than one had anticipated. Um, I think with regards to the Palestinians, we're seeing uh, possibly a similar situation. I think um, there is currently support primarily to the population in the Gaza Strip, uh, I think initially when the news or about the uh, murderous attacks that Hamas perpetrated inside Israel, there were signs of uh, almost jubilation at some quarters of um, the Pal- Palestinian society. There were also understandably uh, grave concerns which were not expressed as uh, in, in the same kind of voiceless manner. Um, at the moment, though, uh, I think we're going to see a rallying to the flag on both sides uh, uh, and how things will really move forward depends on how the war uh, uh, will progress. Uh, and of course, depends also on the how quickly the humanitarian situation in Gaza um, deteriorates and whether that will have an impact on the war itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also depends very much on whether Israel whether the Israel and Hamas war will actually transform into a regional war, which is something that the United States, of course, is trying very, very hard to prevent. And that's why they have offered this uh, unequivocal, very strong support, military, economic and political to Israel at this moment in time. Well, Dr. Aran, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. There are a lot of people take ballet lessons when they're kids, but how many of them have the ability, the talent, the wherewithal to stick with it? Well, maybe they'd like to. Canada's National Ballet School is embarking on its annual national audition tour. So they are looking for exceptionally talented and passionate young dancers to join their program. Maybe you know somebody who might be interested, but first we thought we should find out what this is actually like, right? They have something like a thousand young dancers who audition every year. Ultimately, they choose about 175 of them to even move on to the second stage. That's how rigorous these standards are. But you know who's made it through? Our guest. It's Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth is a local grade nine student who is attending the National Ballet School's professional program and is with us now. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, When did you start doing ballet? I started doing ballet around the age of three. Wow. Did you love it right away? Um, I loved it right away. Yeah. What do you love about it? Um, I really love the fluidity and how it makes me happy and it's really joyful. I think that's probably the most important thing, isn't it, Elizabeth? Right? Mm-hmm. Making it making you happy. How many hours a day do you do ballet? Um, I tend to do ballet around 
five hours or four hours. Okay, that's a lot, Elizabeth. That's a lot of ballet. <laughs> Can you give me an idea of what you're, I know you're part of the National Ballet School's program. So what is your schedule like? Like run me through a day. What do you do? Um, normally I wake up um, around 6 a.m. And then I get dressed, do my hair, and then I go to class. My first class is ballet at 8.30 a.m. And then I finish class at around 10.30, and we have a snack break. That's 15 minutes. And then we have nutcracker rehearsal or point or aperfusion from 10.45 or 50 or 11, depending on the day, to 12.30. Then we have lunch until one fifteen, and then we start school from one fifteen to 5.15. Uh, that's a very long day for someone your age there. Lots of people want to be you, though, Elizabeth, and they want to be in this program. Do you have any advice for them? Um, well, I would just have fun at your audition and just be yourself because... That's all they're really looking for. And if you're not having fun, it's not really worth it. That is so true because like you, you have to love it, don't you? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for explaining it to us. And listen, I look forward to seeing you in the Nutcracker one day, okay? Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. That's Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a local grade nine student attending the National Ballet School's professional program. Now, got an idea of the schedule there, right? Maybe you know somebody who would like to audition. They have something like a thousand young dancers who do it every year. Well, this is the time of year to get ready because the National Ballet School is embarking on its audition tour. They will be coming to town and they are looking for some talented and passionate young dancers. So if you know, and I know there's a lot of ballet dancers out there, lots of people take classes starting at a very young age. Look at that. Elizabeth started when she was three. So if you're interested, check out their program, check out those auditions for the National National Ballet School's professional program. This is Mornings with Simi. Out of the blue, literally, I received a letter from uh, the operations department in Langley saying, you know, we will no longer be supporting the event. And I was just gobsmacked. That is Barbara Sharp from the Christmas in Williams Park Society. She was on the show with us yesterday telling us how the society received that letter, as you heard there, from the township of Langley, telling their volunteers the township would no longer be supporting them setting up and taking down the light display in Williams Park. That's a display that has been going on for more than 30 years. So Barb and the volunteers, understandably, pretty devastated. And they say they don't really know why. Well, we might be able to help with that right now because joining us is Eric Woodward, the mayor of the township of Langley, for more on this. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, so what is happening with this light display? Why isn't the township of Langley going to support it this year? Well, the township of Langley does support it. I think there's uh, it's been unfortunate, you know, things get out of hand on social media sometimes. Uh, the township of Langley doesn't require any rent of the park. It, it's not, no maintenance costs or restoration costs for the park itself. I believe there's traffic control involved um, and no electricity charges are charged and the caretaker of the park helps out. So and, uh, I think it's important to note it's not a Township of Langley event and there's been a, a, you know, a few challenges over the years. Um, and then the cost has uh, increased significantly in terms of the subsidy that's going towards it. And management didn't have any council approval from uh, three to four years ago to be putting this kind of a amount towards it. It would be the, the third largest, second largest grant in the entire township. And we have so many good causes. We require a pretty significant process to get a township grant from so many others. I think it's appropriate for a council to review this. Okay, so is it still possible? Is it still like part of the review process? Because I, I feel like the society feels like without the support of this, the township, they can't do it. Yeah, I know. I heard that. I was a bit surprised to hear that on uh, your segment uh, with the, one of the organizers yesterday. Um, you know, it's challenging to hear that because the event can still continue. There's uh, so, such amazing support for it online. I believe there will be so many volunteers. Uh, for some reason, that organizer waited almost six weeks uh, to raise the issue at the council table. Um, it feels more, a little bit more about a campaign to, to get council to give a grant outside of a process. Uh, rather than, I think, just come forward and be constructive and positive about it. We were also a bit taken up, taken aback because if notice had been sort of talked about over the summer, 
And then the letter goes out, I believe, because I've kind of had a chance to talk to management about it now. The letter goes out as soon as the management got back from vacation. Um, you know, it's a bit surprising. Why would they wait five to six right. weeks to raise the issue? Yeah, I'm taking a look at the letter now. So the letter went out September 11th. I guess, could this have been avoided, do you think, Bear Woodward, if somebody had just given them a call and said, why don't you come on in? I know this is a big event. Come on in. Let's talk about it. You've been volunteering for 30 years. A face-to-face meeting might have been better. I think there was those meetings. That's the challenge. I believe senior management has communicated uh, uh, some issues with the organizer uh, many times. So I, this is, again, I think a more of a campaign uh, to, to sort of come to council to go around the grant process. It doesn't mean that council won't decide to authorize the funding, but we also can't have our senior management, uh, you know, spending uh, unauthorized amounts of that amount without council being aware of it. So uh, for whatever reason, under previous mayor, that process wasn't followed. And I think I support the management in bringing this to council's attention and council can, can easily require staff to go and, and put up these lights and take them down, even if they don't want to. Okay, so would you, what would you say to the society then, the volunteers? Would you say, hey, listen, do the grants process. You never know what might happen. Yeah, and then I think we can, we can um, improve that process. There's a lot of work that goes into getting a grant, and it only occurs once a year. So I think that could certainly look at moving it over to the grant process next year. And I think council will be more than open to uh, requiring staff to put up these lights and take them down, again, even if they don't want to. And I think it's uh, it's perfectly great to have that process. I, I think it's been unfortunate to see it handled this way. I think one call to my office on September 12th probably could have had this resolved very quickly. I learned about it on social media claiming the event had to be cancelled. And uh, as I said on Global yesterday, we want to work with societies that, that want to work with us. And, uh, you know, I think it's unfortunate that for some reason, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of left for five to six weeks you know, when it's much closer to the event, claiming it now can't continue, that's that's certainly not what I would have done. Right. It, it's tough when you're talking about volunteers, people who've given, you know, decades to do this, and maybe they're just not savvy about this process. Well, that's, I mean, that's also very possible. And I appreciate that, you know, a lot of volunteers may not understand civics. The person you had on yesterday, one of the organizers, is the former mayor of the city of North Vancouver. So I don't think that that can be raised as an objection to me. Right. I think it's pretty obvious that person knows the process. Okay, so then what would you say to these volunteers, Mayor Woodward? I would say council really values the event, and, and I think you're going to I think see a really good discussion on Monday, and I think there's no concern. I think there's an ability to potentially fund it, to hire others, and, and you know, set that amount. And I think it's, it's become to the point where you know, township staff and, and union staff, are, it's not really their job to put up and take down Christmas lights. Uh, so I think it certainly would be better, I think, to start talking about a cash amount that the volunteers can put to work. Um, also then accounting for the, down, the donations that they receive as part of this event. They're, this is not a free event. I mean, it is free. You don't have to pay. But there's also a donation component. And for the volumes that they've been talking about, 25,000 people, that could be a significant amount of money. And that's also never been accounted for since 2018. So I think uh, that also is part of the process to get grant funding from the township. You have to require the need, sorry, display the need and account for right. uh, what it's used for. And so these donations have been collected for five years and never accounted for. Okay, so ha- but let's talk about the type of event this is here. Like how important are these types of events, especially since we're coming up on that time of year when people want to go do this? So what is the township planning? How important are these? These are great events, and I think that that's been lost, that the Township of Langley, um, you know, under this council, uh, really, really wants to see uh, community events expanded um, as part of the next budget process. I'm hoping to have that that funded by council, um, where we can uh, maybe add more of these events. We could have a Williams Park event. We could have events other parts of the township closer to where people are. You know, township's a large municipality, lots of different urban centers, I think it'd be great to see more of these events throughout the township for sure. And uh, I think that's been lost. There's been some commentary from this organizer that somehow council's doing this and that, that just isn't true. And I think it's tough because, you know, a lot of us live in this community, know a lot of the people online that perhaps have bad information and it just isn't right. And I think it's, I think it's great that council is going to have an opportunity to weigh in here on Monday. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning.
No problem. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Anytime. That is Eric Woodward, the mayor of the township of Langley, putting out what the township says happened with the Williams Park, you know, Christmas light display. We heard from uh, one of the volunteer society uh, people yesterday, Barbara Sharp, and you can see there's a very mm, difference of opinion, let's put it that way, about where this kind of has gone wrong and off the rails there. So will it happen or what it won't happen? I think that's what people in the community want to know is you look forward to these events every year. This is one that's gone on for 30 years. Is there still time to make this one happen? Or will they have to, you know, apply through the grants process, get that help? I don't know. We'll find out more. We'll get reaction as well from the Volunteer Society on this. Uh, But these are the, the types of events that really make people love living in the community that they live in, right? There's probably one in your neighborhood that is important to you and you would hate to see it lost. Uh, So we'll definitely continue to follow this and find out what happens. As the mayor said, there is a council meeting happening this week where this is going to be discussed and we will have that for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about crosswalks, shall we? Where normally you would walk the line, but not the case when you're talking about a scramble pedestrian crossing. Our Scott Shantz is with us now. Scott, do you like these? Uh, Yeah, I think they're kind of a cool idea. I think that they can be exciting and feel sort of like a positive sort of chaotic energy, you know? There's like a chaotic energy around them. The first time that you you do one, there is some this kind of like, look at me, I'm crossing right in the middle of it. Like you can move diagonally across and you do feel like you're doing something outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like a fun idea that, you know, we we maybe have seen them in other places or other other countries. Uh, There's some famous ones in movies and stuff that we will talk about. But yeah, Vancouver is set to get one. It's going to be at Robson and Granville. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be one of these. It, it go, cycles three ways. So like you cross one way, you cross the other way, you cross all ways. You cross one way, you cross the other way, you cross all ways. And uh, it's going to be have some positive benefits and some negative benefits, but city council has voted on it and it looks like it's going to go ahead. So I got in touch with a gentleman named John Turecki and he is like a planning and development expert project manager for uh, transport and engineering and infrastructure, those type of things. And he has a lot to say about uh, scramble crosswalks and other type of infrastructure like this. That's different than what we're, what we're normally used to in a place like Vancouver. So I started off by asking him just, you know, let's define, that idea. What, if you don't know, even are scramble crosswalks? Yeah, so scramble crosswalk uh, could mean a couple of different things. Uh, the main feature is that you're allowed to cross on the diagonal from one corner of an intersection to another rather than just being able to cross one street at a time. Okay, like we, I think we've seen this in movies. Like there's a famous one in Tokyo, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the one I think that's sort of the, the one that jumps to mind for people when they think of a scramble crossing, that there should be a crossing um, in Tokyo there. And that's got, it's one of the busiest intersections in the world. And, and it's a pretty uh, prime example of, of what we're talking about here. Yeah, like all the cars kind of stop and then people are basically allowed to go anywhere they want. They can diagonal, like cross horizontally, vertically, or, you know, uh, whichever way. So all the cars stop and all the pedestrians go. Now, I guess my main question here, and like Vancouver's going to get one of these now. That's what it sounds like. We're going to get one of these at Granville and Robson. Exactly, yeah. So it's also going to be called a pedestrian priority phase, and that's exactly what you're talking about there, where all the folks who want to cross the street can go at the same time. They can cross any which way they want to. It's similar to an intersection that we have in Vancouver right now with Robson and Hornby, which is an all-walk intersection. That doesn't allow for those diagonal crossings, so the scramble is kind of a little bit different than that. Okay, and what is the benefit of this? Is this like a timing thing or is it a safety thing? What What's the benefit? What's the idea behind it? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that the scramble crossing can do. Number one, it can help to resolve conflicts between vehicles and pedestrians because you're bringing everyone to a stop in a vehicle. Uh, it allows folks to cross the street without having to worry about those vehicles turning left or right across where they're going. Uh, the other thing it can do can help to, depending on how it's implemented, decrease the amount of time that pedestrians are having to wait to cross the street. Hmm. Okay. Now what about cars? They must, they must feel like if you're, a, a you know, in a vehicle and you come up to this crosswalk, because usually it's like their turn, our turn, their turn, our turn. But now with three different cycles, because th- this will go like their turn, you cross one way, cross the other way, then scramble. Do I have that right? Cross one way, cross the other way, then scramble. Exactly. Yeah. And so will this make cars, end up waiting longer? 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of the trade-offs, right? You're getting the benefit of, of resolving some of those potential safety interactions between vehicles and people walking in. The trade-off with that is you are bringing cars to a stop for a longer period of time. And that can have impacts to folks driving. It can have impacts to people on buses as well. Okay. What are the concerns around, like, is this going to create, like, longer traffic, more delays in sort of that downtown core for people who are on transit? Like, should we expect, you know, that, that we're going to see, like, more roads backed up, that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about one intersection here, right? So it's not going to be a, a big network impact. And, and the folks at the city, as far as I know, have done a lot of work to figure out what those impacts are going to look like. And, and you know, in their opinion, they're satisfied that they're not going to be significant. And really, it's about trade-offs, right? It's about trade-offs for prioritizing pedestrians, finding ways to allow people to cross the intersection more safely, more conveniently. Uh, and we accept that there are potentially some impacts to, to vehicles, right? That's how it works at uh, a lot of other intersections, too, when we had things like leading pedestrian intervals or bike lanes and things like that, where uh, it's a measure that prioritizes those active modes, people walking, people cycling. Yeah. And to your point, like if it, if it, um, makes it safer. I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, is this the type of crosswalk that we should see in more places throughout Metro Vancouver? Scramble intersections are, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's not necessarily something that you're going to want to put in at, at every intersection. It, uh, there are significant impacts to traffic at times, and it's really a tool that is useful in very particular circumstances. And so there's, uh, there's going to be limited opportunities to use this and, and places like this Granville and Robson intersection where you've got really high volumes of pedestrians. That's where it starts to kind of make sense and where it's reasonable to kind of think about it. Okay. Do you think it's going to become like one of these things like we have in Tokyo that people are going to come down there and Instagram it just because it's now like the newest, coolest thing? <laughs> I wish traffic engineering was that cool. <laughs> I was going to ask, does this like uh, the idea of, you know, sort of crosswalks becoming kind of the cool thing, you know, because I mean, that one in Tokyo, like we talked about it, that is kind of um, you know, like thousands of people cross that at a time or something, right? Do you have a number? Do you know about that? I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, I don't know if it's thousands, but it's certainly many hundreds, starting from the photos that I've seen. It's uh, definitely an iconic piece of infrastructure. Yeah, very cool. How does something like infrastructure like that become iconic? That's a really great and really big question. Uh, I think it's just the, the relationship that we have with the way that we experience the public spaces that we have in, in our cities. You know, we see lots of, of things like bridges and, and things like that that are iconic, like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Lionsgate Bridge. Um, when people use them and, and they see them in their day-to-day -day lives, they can become kind of part of the background that we see and, and part of the identity of the city. Yeah, I think about the scene in, and this is going to sound cheesy, there's a Fast and Furious movie where, you know, the car, like, slides through the intersection and the people kind of part, like, the sea, you know, and then, kind of, it, it, I mean, obviously it's not real, but it's, like, shot at that intersection and it looks pretty amazing, you know, it looks so full of life and very, yeah, notable from these scenes in, in movies and television and stuff. Um, let me ask you about one other thing while I have you. So you mentioned uh, Scramble Crosswalks being a tool in the toolbox. What about the Things like roundabouts and other tools in the toolbox. Does that exist? You know, anyone who's been to Europe, we, you know, we see that. I'm starting to see more in places like Abbotsford. I know they have some roundabout intersections there. Are those an option? Does that work well? Or is that not a fit for like North American traffic like we see yeah. in Europe? For sure. Yeah. I mean, as I say, it's a, it's a tool in a toolbox, right? It, it works in certain situations. It solves a certain kind of problem. When you're dealing with a dense network of streets like we have in a place like downtown Vancouver, space for a roundabout just is hard to come by, right? Land's super valuable in a city like Vancouver, and roundabouts tend to take up a lot more space than more typical signalized intersections. So that's one of the significant impacts and drawbacks to roundabouts in this kind of an environment. But, you know, we do have roundabouts in the lower mainland, certainly uh, at UBC and, and other places. That's John Tarecki. He is a uh, infrastructure and planning expert. Uh, he uh, he works in uh, contract with the city right. and is very familiar with uh, these type of things. And yeah, Simi, I think that we need to start planning our Instagram shoot at oh. the Scramble Crosswalk. My, my so answer that to that opens. is what Instagram shoot? <laughs> because no, <laughs> just no. Um, also, people are pointing out that you know there are other areas where this has happened before. Like Kathleen wrote me to say, hey. Steveston has had a scramble crosswalk for years at number one road in Moncton. Really? Yes. Okay. See, these are wonderful things that, you know, I love to get to learn about as, as we do this. I've never been through one. 
Maybe you need to get out to Steveston. It sounds like it. Yeah, you need to spend some time out there. Although you're in North Van, so I understand that far. maybe you don't get... It's not pretty far. It's just a little bit of a, you know, different it's journey far for enough. you. It's Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. I don't see the Steveston people coming to North Van, Simmy. You don't know that. <laughs> After right, all the talk that you've done about the brewery <laughs> district and all that kind of totally. stuff. So yeah, 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 of course, maybe they have. Maybe they Steveston have. is a gem. Absolute okay. gem. And so many great places to eat there. So yeah, Kathleen, I am with you on that one. Uh, so yeah, there's one out there for you to check out. It does feel like you're kind of breaking the rules when you use one. So I can see why people like them. It'll be fun when it opens. Robson and Granville. Okay. All right, Robson and Gravel, which is great because it's not a huge driver-oriented right. crosswalk to begin with. Yes. Right? That's not a, like, which is a great way to start and ease people into it. Scott, thank you for that. Sure. Found a way in, simi at cknw.com. I'm getting all these emails on it. People have a lot of thoughts about Scramble Crosswalk. So yeah, send them to me. You can also call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this next story might just be one of my favorites of the week, actually. I love talking about history. So you may have read about this global effort to translate some ancient Roman scrolls that had been severely damaged by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius way back in AD 79. Over the years, a lot of years, there have been all sorts of attempts to try and decipher what is in these scrolls, but no luck until now. Our next guest was key to making this happen, this breakthrough. Luke Verder is a 21-year-old computer science major at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and joins us now. Luke, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. When did you first hear about this and like, how did you get involved? Yeah, so the, the story of this kind of project is a bit uh, long and varied, but the short answer is that Dr. Brent Seals at the University of Kentucky has been working to get these scans for a very long time. He got them a few years ago, and then he worked with Silicon Valley entrepreneur Nat Friedman to kind of take the scans, open source them, and then just kind of release them on the Internet and say, hey, if you can find writing in these scans, uh, we'll give you a bunch of money. I found out about this in March. Uh, I was immediate, immediately like, holy cow, like, this is really cool. I got to do this. Uh, and I just kind of started working on it and never stopped. So I've been working on it for about... I don't know, I guess six months now. Okay, but how do you work on it? Like, these are ancient Roman scrolls. How is it that you, as a computer science major, could work on this? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a background in AI. And this is fundamentally an AI problem where you have to use this kind of machine learning, computer vision techniques to kind of train a model to recognize these letters inside the scrolls. So, yes, there's a lot of things here I'm unfamiliar with. I don't know Greek, which is what the scrolls are in. I don't know a ton about CT scanning. But the AI stuff, I knew I could do, or at least if I worked hard, I could make an impact. Okay, so how did you do that? Where do you even start? So a lot of, a lot of it was just really challenging because the scans are super high resolution. They're like a terabyte. It's hard to keep them on your laptop. It's hard to move them around. It's hard to kind of visualize or even think about them. So I spent a lot of time just really trying to get a good intuition for what the data looks like. What, you know, what is what inside these scans? Is that, you know, a piece of string? Is that some kind of piece of writing, like what's, what's going on with all these patterns. Because, of course, this papyrus, it's, it's not like paper today. It's this weird, like, grid pattern. They weren't as sophisticated as, as we are now. And then I think in about June, another contestant, uh, his name's Casey Hammer, he discovered a pattern which he believed to be writing within the scroll. And he kind of shared this finding with the community because he'd kind of gotten stuck. He, he found out about it, but um, put in... Uh, you know, couldn't make any progress beyond just finding it. So we kind of shared it with everyone else. I kind of saw this, and then I used that pattern as kind of training examples for my AI model. And then after a lot of iteration, after a lot of improvement, I was able to improve the model to detect a single word. Okay, what was the word? So I found the word. I was very excited. I submitted it for review by kind of the whole Vesuvius Challenge team. They had a consortium of Greek experts, and they came back, and apparently the word means purple, uh, which is really cool in my opinion. I'm glad it's not the word the or in or an. It's actually an interesting word, purple, or it means like purple clothing or something, uh, which is really exciting. And that's a huge breakthrough. It may not seem like purple would be a huge breakthrough, but it is huge. So why is that? Can you put that into context for us? So if you can figure out how to read one word in the scroll you can probably figure out how to read all the other words in the school. It's just going to be a little bit harder. You just got to figure out a little bit more, but you've proven that it's possible. 
people have been trying to read these scrolls since they started digging them up hundreds of years ago. And this is a real breakthrough, being able to read them without physically unrolling them and damaging them in the process. Luke, is it possible that in AD 79, the word purple meant the same thing in terms of a type of color as it does today? That's what the Greek experts tell me. From my understanding, the word means purple. It also means something like purple clothing. It can also refer to the snail that they use to get the purple dye or something like that. Again, I'm not an expert, but yes, people have a pretty good idea of what, what Greek they used back then. So we're pretty certain that the word oh. means purple. That is so cool. Okay, so that's one little like you know key that you got there, a big key. What's the next step? What do you do now? The next step is to try my algorithm on more pieces of the scroll, and that's been going quite well. I can't share any results yet, but you need to kind of take this scroll, you need to take the spiral and kind of virtually unroll the scroll, and then you need to kind of, once you've kind of virtually unrolled the whole scroll, you need to detect your ink on it. So I've been working very, very hard on that process. Um, things have been going great. The, there's kind of a grand prize for the competition that I and others have been working toward, um, and I'm excited to share more results uh, kind of as they come. Okay, has this turned you from a computer science major to maybe like a minor in history as well? I've always been into history. Um, I've been focusing really hard on, on this challenge. Um, so, you know, if that translates into a, a history minor or something like that, we'll see. Um, but right now I'm just focused on winning the grand prize. Does it not amaze you, Luke, when you think about it, like how far back this project goes that you're working on? Yeah, it. It really boggles the mind. Just um, it's really crazy. Like, you know, I learned Latin growing up. I'm not very good, but, you know, I've always been into this history stuff. And it, it still just blows my mind just how long ago this stuff was written, how hard it's been to read them. Um, overall, I just feel very grateful that I get to kind of make an impact in, in understanding this history. What else do you think that we could use this for? Like, obviously, this is a cool thing. Where else can we use this? So the first thing everyone's going to want to do is read the entire library. So they've scanned two scrolls. We're working on reading one of them. And then once we kind of finish reading that scroll, uh, we're going to want to read the hundreds of other scrolls that were recovered from the library in this condition. After that, the, the kind of place where these scrolls were found has not been fully excavated. So presumably you could dig up uh, many more, potentially hundreds more scrolls. And that's going to be a very big many-year effort. But doing so would potentially double the amount of writing we have from the Roman Empire, potentially, which is, is really exciting. So everyone involved is really focused on just reading this scroll and reading all the other scrolls next to it. Um, and then there are other, you know, kind of burnt up uh, artifacts from history as well that we could turn our attention towards. But there's just so much stuff to find in this library. That is so cool, Luke. So up until now, we thought, well, maybe we don't need to dig it up because we don't actually know anything about what it says. But now we have a reason to go do that. Exactly. And, you know, it's, you know, you know this better than I, than I but, you know, it's always a logistical challenge where you got to, you know, get the funding and find the right people. But now that we've, you know, we have one word purple, we can show, hey, we can get stuff out of here without damaging the scrolls. I think people are going to be a lot more enthusiastic. Oh, man, I can't wait to talk to you again when you have more breakthroughs. Luke, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.